This is Mind Raid with the Koch brothers. All right, guys, welcome to Mind Raid episode uh, four. I'm sitting here with a really, really good old friend of mine, uh, Devin Christian, and I believe Eric will be showing up sometime here soon, Debo. We'll see. He's training hard. Hopefully, he's going to be fighting London uh, in, in March, though, so that'll be sick. Devin Christian has way more followers on social media than I do. He's way more popular than I do. Uh, that I have. Debo is absolutely killing it right now on Instagram. Devin Christian, one of the first, wasn't the, one of the first, was the first. The first guy to come with me and train with me in the basement, part of the McLeod USA crew. Devin, you're awesome. Welcome to Mind Raid, and thank you for taking the time to come here. I know you're you're a busy guy. You've got a, a family to take care of, so welcome, and thank you for coming. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me out, man. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about McLeod. Oh, what? Jesus, man. We were talking, me and Bo were talking about this with Eric, right? So Eric didn't get to be a part of what McLeod is. Tell me what you remember about this. Tell me the most audacious things that you remember about. Tell them for the audience that doesn't know, McLeod USA is a now defunct telephone company that resold the broken up Ma Bell company telephone lines and gave shitty service. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was kind of a circus sideshow, it was. to be honest. I remember not working there too long and I was taking a call. I did customer service. Uh, some inbound sales, you know, the normal right when you get out of college. And uh, I remember a ball hitting me in the back of the head. And I picked <laughs> it up and I threw it behind me because obviously I was working. You know, I took my job seriously. You did one of these. Yeah, I just took yeah. it and gave it a little huck. I then had somewhat plump fellow come up and tell me that I needed to go pick this ball up. I said no. I was working. He insisted I did or he was going to kick my, uh, my rear end. And it ended up turning into you're going to do it. Or else I'm going to beat you up after work. You know, you know, more explicit than that. But this person, we're not going to name the person's yeah. name. But did they have a wrinkle in the back of their head? Uh, I'm sure they did. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they did. Because there was somebody at McLeod that they had called that people had called Fathead. Oh, I don't know about that. Oh well, there's a guy that we were talking about the the pellets. You remember the pellets when they would gut the beanie babies? Were you there for that? Mm -hmm. they would okay so like it might have been before you got there but people would take these McLeod USA star beanie beanie baby uh -huh. they, they'd give them away for sales like shitty prizes for getting sales and people would gut them and they would fill their desk drawer reservoirs with these little plastic pellets from inside these beanie babies and right when like Dan McDaniel and Ryan people weren't looking they would shoot these pellets at each other you would see Devo I'm not kidding you would see a rain it would like it looked like war games except little plastic pellets on the sales floor. And I, I shot oh. one, shamelessly I shot one and stuck one in this dude's fat roll. And I think it's the guy that you're talking about. I think I remember you telling me about this story. So what happened? Did did you guys duke it out in the parking lot? Because no, some people did. No. Um so, you know, I didn't think anything was gonna come of it. 
I, I told my buddy that used to work there. We were really good friends at the time. Uh, Morris, Jer Mr. Jeremy Morris. Jeremy Morris, a, a guy I trained with even before you back in the day, yep, right? Yep, very, very good friend back then. And I told him it was going to happen. He's like, nah, he's like, if it does, yeah, it's no big deal. Uh, I was walking out to my car and I heard, all right, you ready to fight, buddy? You ready to get your ass kicked? I'm like, oh boy, this, this really is going to happen. And about five seconds later, Jeremy <laughs> and his buddy pull up, get out of the truck yeah. with baseball bats. And they're like, What'd you say to our friend? Yeah. Oh, nothing, nothing. I was Shit. just going to talk to him about some stuff. They're like, that's not what we just heard. It was Nick, wasn't it? No. It no. wasn't Nick. No. Okay. No, I never had issues with him. Um, oh. He's one of the funny stories, though. He was, uh, I never had issues with him. He was very funny. Um, but still to this day, he's the reason I say, oh, Ian, it's so large. Oh, okay. <laughs> we t so you haven't even seen the podcast. Devin hasn't even seen our last podcast with Bo because I haven't finished editing and releasing it yet. But when Bo brought up McLeod USA, he goes, it was kind of a weird culture and they would say weird things like, so large. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the sales floor, imagine the sea of desks, rows of desks, the most like mono monotone, monotonous environment you can imagine, but communicative, right? People were hollering shit, walking around, slapping hands. It was, yeah, it was a high, high energy sales area like you see on yeah. the movies, you know? Yeah, and, and this guy, uh, <laughs> Jerry, would prop himself up. So he'd be on his, he'd be hearing it, looking around the sales floor, he'd do one of these and he'd, He'd go, <laughs> and he'd do chair dips, remember? He'd be doing chair dips and pumping up. Had a polo on, and oh, it was skin tight. Looked like ultimate warrior bands around his biceps, and he was pumping his triceps for everybody. So then people start screaming, so large. Oh, Jerry, your triceps are so large. Yeah, that, that morphed into multiple things. Then there was a, a gentleman, Ian. Mm -hmm. Who had an Escalade with, I think, what, 24 inch rims on it? Jesus, I can't. And then it, I, see, I totally forget about <laughs> shit like that. And now it's It escalated with... into talking about his rims being so large. And then, oh, yeah, your rims are so big. They're bigger than a baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so so that was the more mild shit. What, what we're not talking about is that uh, 90, probably 90% 90 of the population of McLeod over break, over lunch, and over basically any available time was out in the parking lot smoking bowls. Probably a good chance of that. I would yeah, say, you know? pretty much everybody. I, like, I remember going through Dan McDaniel's team and going, I think I'm the only person here that doesn't regularly get bombed in the parking lot. And I, I, there'd be people like Tracy that would go, hey, you want to go out on lunch? And I'd go out on lunch and she'd just fire up. And I was like, holy shit, that's like, you know what I mean? I wasn't, yeah. oh, I wasn't yeah. in, that seemed kind of risky to me, but it was everybody on the whole sales floor. Every, uh, not everybody, but a huge overwhelming majority of these salespeople hated their jobs so much that they would just spend their every waking moment getting bombed out of their mind. The management was, they would have these team meetings and they'd say the same things. You remember... You remember the, the, the vision, managers? The vision statement. The vision statement. Yeah, to be a world-class value-added telecommunication ah. services provider. I used to remember all of it. I don't remember any because, of it. Because we, made, we were made to memorize it. Yeah. And then the whole country, the whole company that who's based in core values and preached core values imploded big time. Um, what else do you remember about that? What are some other characters that you remember from? Uh, well, you spoke of our, our buddy Jesse Rittenhouse, uh, yeah. one of the most, one of the most memorable 
was unfortunately when Jesse lost his job. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys talk about that one? We did. We. we <laughs> how could we not? Uh, Bo, Bo brought it up because he he said that he had a slight part in officiating that there fight yeah, in the parking yep, he lot. Did. He did. Yeah. He had to try to break it up. You know. You remember I was out because I my child was being born. Oh, Ronan, Ronan was, was being why. born. They were they were drinking at work, unbeknownst to everyone. They had the big gulps <laughs> filled with vodka and pop. They were drunk. And they ended up arguing over who could bench press more. Bo brought up the remember the um, Chinese security guard Ken. He was going out and be like is like a Van Damme movie. No, jumped over the thing. Jesse, no, no, don't do it. McLeod USA is where we met. I was a supervisor there at the time, right? Yep. Or had I not? Okay, so yep. I was. Yeah, I'd already gotten me. promoted. Right. Um, at the time, you were a street racer. I did. I I, I partook in street racing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, I, don't, I don't really know what. What you would call me? First day you came in in uh, to train. Day, first day, yeah. Day first day one. you asked me to train. So at the time we worked till nine o'clock at night, and we went over to train at like nine thirty. Yeah. So go over at nine thirty. I'm six foot one. You're what? Five. Five eight. Five eight. Yeah. So I'm a good three four inches taller than you with shoes mm-hmm. on. I'm thinking, really? I mean, you were big at that time. Husky. Big. Very yeah, husky. You were big and strong. Like one eighty. Yeah. And I remember walking down there and like thinking, yeah, this dude looks strong, but I'm a good, I'm a good four inches taller than him. I think you might be trying to squeak another inch or so. I might be five inches taller than him. Um, and I lasted probably 15, 20 seconds realistically, and I thought I might die. I mm-hmm. thought I, I might actually pass away in your basement. I thought you might kill me. <laughs> He's going to kill me. Legitimately what? kill me. So you, it was fatigue, right? Fatigue yeah. is really what got to yeah. you. And, well, fatigue, and you didn't have any idea what that you were doing at the time. Yeah. And I had been through this before. So at the time, this was still pretty early. This was still pretty early in the mm-hmm. sport. I knew some shit. I didn't know nearly what I know now, of course, obviously. But I knew uh, enough that when people came to train with me, I usually had a huge advantage over them in terms of experience. Now, Dale, Dale Keeley, or as we know him, Kale Dealey. Kale Daly. He, he stopped in the gym to see me not that long ago. It's good to see him. Yeah, I haven't yeah, seen him with his time. motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, I saw that. Um, so I had Dale train with me for quite a while, mm-hmm. and then I had Jeremy train with me for quite a while. Yep. They had you know, back issues, and life just takes people in different directions. That's just the way it works. <laughs> so I was having a hard time finding somebody, and I was like, well, screw it. This guy works with me. You know, he seems kind of interested in what I talk about when I talk about the stuff. After you tapped out to exhaustion, it, it really was exhaustion that you tapped out to. I remember. No, I, th- I think you legitimately tapped me about 17 times before exhaustion, and that was in 20 seconds. Well, I don't know how you can tap somebody out 15 times in 20 seconds, but you were, uh, you were tired, and I got up thinking, oh, man, like this guy's not going to last. He's not going to stay. This is going to suck so bad for him that he's going to leave just like everybody else leaves. And then you came back. That was the first piece of this hybrid faction kind of pie, so to speak. Uh, At that point in time, Eric hadn't came to train. Lennox hadn't come to train. Bo hadn't came to train. It was just me looking for somebody, and you were there. And you were outmatched physically by a lot of the people in the gym in terms of strength and size. And I think that is what led to the the vast and uh, quick improvement in your skill set. Because you went from lasting 18 seconds on the mat to grappling for you know, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes at a time. Yeah, I think it was I think it was two things. One, not having anything to change. So, you know, a wrestler trying to take them into, you know, Muay Thai or mm-hmm. Jiu-Jitsu can often be a, you know, kind of a tough turn for them when they're so used to wrestling. And two, consistent one-on-one. I mean, I, I absorbed everything you had. Six yeah. days a week we trained, 
and you were always there. So, I mean, well, I got to learn from you, and we got to try stuff on each other, and it was every single day, sometimes twice a day on the weekends. You th- know? That's, that's, and I'm <clears throat> glad that you're reiterating that because that's kind of what I want people to know. We got the majority of what we know about how to fight and be fighters in that basement. In exactly what you said, we were there every single day. We were, the, we would, um, this was a second shift job. So we would sleep all night up until the afternoon, get up, go to work at, it was 1230, right? Well, I was going to college. I was a full-time college student oh, and working. Yeah, That's so right. I would still get You're, up at yeah, early. nine. Yeah, nine for um, classes and then. 12, so like 12 noon to nine o'clock at night, we would, we would get to my place and get started, suited up about 930, and we'd train for two hours. Mm-hmm. And train until 1130, almost midnight, every single night, every single day. I was talking to Eric about this. There was a time when me and Eric trained in Lamont for 60 days straight between training before Lamont. But when we got to Lamont, we trained for 60 days straight. I could feel my immune system breaking down. You know, you've been there before, right? Absolutely. You train too much and you're like, holy shit, I'm going to get sick tomorrow. It was, it was crazy in that basement. And I feel like the majority of combat sports mentality and in true teamwork and understanding of what a team is came from the people in that basement. What do you remember about the basement? Because you you lived in this house after I moved out. I moved yep. to Lamont. You moved in. You had the basement. What do you remember vividly about the basement? I remember Eric's hole in the wall. Eric's he, arse print. Where his ass print. Yeah. <laughs> he got double legs no, through the that drywall. Was my, wasn't that my butt print from where he double legged me into it? I honestly have no idea. I don't remember. One of the know. two, but... <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I don't know what, what to say about it. It was a basement, an unfinished basement, concrete floors, concrete walls. No wall padding. No, at that time, no wall padding. So we consistently had scraped up knuckles from doing any sort of clinch work on the walls. And you had to like... I remember the electrical sockets that you had. How could you forget? Had metal <laughs> plates on them, but they were the electrical sockets that were not recessed. Stainless so steel. So it was the stock, socket that stuck out with a stainless steel plate on the front of it. And I remember one night, well, there was a pole in the middle, a brace, <laughs> a brace for the basement. So yeah. there was a, a steel pole in the middle. And I remember one night, I, I couldn't tell you what we were doing, grappling of some sort. Yeah. And I turned, my heel hit it and sliced it open. And the back of my heel was completely showing. You could see a little bit of, of the bone. Yeah. And, um, you, and you barely touched it, but it was yeah, so I just, sharp. I just knocked up against it. It just sliced it wide, yeah. wide open. 20, 22 stitches later, I think. Yeah, and it was... 13 inside. It was wet down there. You remember oh, yeah, that? It was, it was moist. Moist. It was real moist. Very, very uh, moist. You had, you had mirrors on one side of it, and the yeah. mirrors would be completely dripping with... Yeah, because oh, we had like a little lifting spot. dude, you're blowing my mind. And the, and the mirrors would just be crying and raining. Yeah, it's like, why sweat. have these things? They just remind us of how gross it is down here. Our, our gloves and our shin guards, so cold, so gross and wet. Well, that's when we actually got them. For however long did we train without gloves or shin guards, and we only did open palm boxing and kickboxing? We did that for quite some time. I think that this is a good segue into pressure point. Guys. <laughs> 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 we, we need to talk about this because Devin was there. He saw this happen. And if he wasn't there and he didn't see this happen and I told people about it, they might not believe me when I tell them. But there was a guy uh, who heard about me through my brother. This guy I had known when I was a kid. He was showing some martial arts moves when my brother went to some camp out or something. And somebody tells him, oh, hey, Keone's brother trains you know, for mixed martial arts. I was still relatively early, but I was definitely training to be a mixed martial artist. 
So he goes to Eric, you know, oh, really? Well, could I get his information? I'd like to train with him. What are you talking about? Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, if Eric, of course, is like, no. Like, I'm not going to give you my, my brother's number because he didn't know if I wanted him to give out hmm. my number. So kudos to Eric for keeping an eye out. My mom, on the other hand, offered over all of my information to the man, address, <laughs> phone number. And so he calls me and he says, I want to come over and train. And I, and I haven't heard from this cat literally in 15 years. And so I go, okay, cool. He lives in Des Moines, so he's going to come down on a Sunday. It's quite a drive, so he's making a big investment. And I, I don't know what to expect out of this guy. You know, who knows? I haven't seen him. But he shows up, and I have music playing on a radio, like I always do. You know, if I'm going to hit the bag, I'm going to listen to some inspirational stuff. Hey, um... Do you think you could turn off the radio? Uh, no. This is my place. I want to listen to the radio. You're coming here. You don't get to just come into my house and tell me to turn off the radio. At least quantify it. At least tell me why. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. I I just like to train in silence. Okay. Well, you're mysterious, I guess. I put on gloves, boxing gloves, shin guards. We're going to spar and suit up. Do you mind if we don't wear gloves? <laughs> now I'm like, okay, wait a minute. What's what? What do you mean? Well, I like to train for like real situations, like the streets. Now people say this type of thing is a joke now, but this guy was dead ass serious. You know he was. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I at this point I'm kind of annoyed, but I'm like, all right, well I'll meet you in the middle. We'll take the gloves off, but I'm leaving the shin guards on. We start sparring, and I start giving him little tappies. Little tap 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 a Little tap it in. It's tapping it. And I'm I'm putting a little shin tappy on him, and I'm faster than he is. I'm stronger than he is, and I my technique is better. He he practices something. I don't know what it's karate or kung fu or something. But I'm whacking his legs, whacking his legs. And I'm not doing it hard. I'm just letting him know that I could if I really wanted to. <sighs> then you showed up. He t- he turned it up. I remember he turned he it turned up. He turned it up yeah. a lot. What do you remember about pressure point guys' offensive onslaught upon me when we were sparring? I mean, honestly, I don't remember much besides uh, it was pretty one-sided. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember it getting to one point where he turned it up, and I think he might have got you with a little something. Yeah, he slapped me. Yeah. He slapped me in the top of my forehead. Yeah. yeah. He got you with a little something, and I remember Keone looked at me and goes, uh, and then it was about 10 seconds after that, I would say, that it ended up being... Two or three moves into the corner, and then I would do it here, but it would hurt the microphone. And all I remember hearing is a So Because it was open-hand boxing. Yeah, it was palm strikes. We yeah. recorded this, okay? And this is exactly what happened. And you're going to remember this when I tell you. Um, he turns it up. I kick, I kick him in the legs, and I start turning it up. And I'm not being nice about the leg kicks. I kicked this kid over 75 times over the three-round period. And his legs were black and blue, bro. I don't know if you saw him two weeks later, but his dad called me concerned that he might get a blood clot. They were so black and blue. He was limping around and shit. He tried to double fist fireball me. Do you remember that? (gasps) Oh, dude. Oh, my gosh. He did this right here. I do. Yeah, I remember that. He tried to double fist fireball me. I forgot all about that. When he's trying all these techniques, whack, double fist fireball, whack. He's trying all this stuff. He gets me in the corner, and then he, he rushes in with the combo. He hits me in the top of the head with an open hand heart, audibly smack. And we had the camera like this, right? 
and I, I look at you and I drop my hands. And he goes, oh. You remember that? I just remember it was a very large smack. Yeah, I, like I bitch slapped him. I was like. I bitch slapped him. So this, this guy comes back uh, weeks later, legs still bruised, but can now walk, and goes, he has a, a DMOC pressure point book with him. It looks like it's been illustrated by like an eight-year-old child, right? But whatever, I humor him. He goes, hey, you know where you were kicking me in the leg? Yeah. <laughs> well, I in this book it says that it's like it's supposed to stop your heart. And I go, what the fuck are you doing here then, Chad? <laughs> and he goes, oh, no, 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 no. I guess you have to be like really good at it. Oh, okay. I was always the guy people wanted to go against because I was very not threatening. Unassuming, right? yeah. yeah. Six one. I mean, decent. It ended up getting a decently muscular build, but you know, then just you're scrawny. Very average six yeah. one. What were you like? One sixty. Just a dude. And then yeah, probably I'm real yeah, skinny. Because I graduated, yeah, probably like one fifty five, six yeah. one. So by the end scrawny. of your fight career, how how big were you? Now. Like no, when I was like, actually fighting. I, when you were fighting like at, at optimum weight, you were you. There was one point you were jacked. Yeah, I mean, I was like two hundred, pretty solid. Because yeah. I fought, I fought at one eighty five. Damn. And I had to cut. Damn. But I was, I mean, I was never crazy strong or anything. But I ended up getting very, very fit for myself. What's your most memorable fight? Most memorable is probably Bulware when I won the belt. When you won the belt and you belt. beat Bulware three times in one fight. Beat him three times in one fight and broke his arm at the end. Yeah, that was my most. Memorable. We were, we actually that's come up twice. The Bulware fight has come up. And we, me and Lennox, I think we're cornering you for that fight. And we could not believe what we were seeing. Yeah, it was three arm bars, if I remember correct. Um, or was it arm bar, triangle, arm bar? Arm bar. Did they stand up a triangle or some shit like that? Uh, no, they stopped it. I, he, had, he had tapped. And the, the and ref it broke going. it up. He, he, no, he waited. And then the bell rang and he said, no, he never tapped. <sighs> Yeah, armbar, armbar, <laughs> triangle, and then armbar. Yeah, that's what it was. You had to break this cat's arm. And that's kind of the way MMA was back then. Yeah, and I was never that way. Like, I was always, I tried to be very careful because I knew what it was like to train. Like, it's not worth Breaking going out arm. and hurting someone. You know, mm -hmm. we're just regular dudes. We all had to work full-time jobs. Yeah. And I was never like that. And then finally it got to the point where I was like, I was angry. Well, you should you should have been because Bulware was a fairly dangerous guy. He was bringing he he always brought heat yeah, every he time ripped. he fought. Yeah, he was strong extreme, and tough. Yeah, and he extremely had hard. good shape. Yeah, and so you snatched him up right away. You know, things in fights happen like that where the ref doesn't see something or something like that. But then you get him again. Well, you're not telling the whole story. So I don't remember the whole story. This was put on by Jamie. 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 I forget his last name. But come to find out, the ref was, he was on the ref's team. The ref was, he was, tr he trained. I knew there was some politics. Yeah. yeah, I knew there was some po politics involved <coughs> that made so, a clear bias. Yeah, it was, it was rough. And so you were put in a position where you just, you had to do what you had to do. And unfortunately, bullware wasn't tapping. And so you had to do a little snappy snap yeah, on that. Yeah, unfortunately. And this is what I was talking to Eric about. I always thought that you underrated your striking. Do you agree with that? I think I under underestimated everything. Like, and Bo and Bo and I have talked about that. That I never had the the confidence that we were anything special. Like I was just a normal dude. Mm -hmm. We were training in a basement, and to me, I wasn't I wasn't good. Mm -hmm. Even you know, even when people said, "Dude, you know, we're, we're legit." Like it was never that way until Bo's like, "I've traveled, I've trained with black belts, I've trained with brown belts." He's like, "Dude, we were legit back back in the day." Yeah. 
we were legit. There wasn't many people doing what we were doing. There was guys that would train jits. Yes. You'd have guys that trained tie. But how many people had the hard drive, had the... Pride rules. Yeah, had exactly what we and put it all together. And you always stress that. What's it going to be like in an actual fight? You might be able to wrestle, but Debo will choke you out. Oh, you might be able to strike, but Lennox will take you down. Right. And that's what made us good was I adopted kind of a weird jits, more of a Bravo rubber guard type jits. And because I had, I just used what I had, mm-hmm. and I was and really flexible. Legs, yeah, yeah, really flexible, long legs. I wasn't a very good wrestler, but I didn't try to be. Mm-hmm. And that's what made us all good was Jesse could show us wrestling. You showed, I mean, everything. I tried to, you know, share my stuff, and we all just bounced stuff off of each other every night, every yeah. single night, just trying to get better. We each had stuff that we did. Bo, Bo could guillotine anyone. Yep. Bo could guillotine a snake. Mm-hmm. And he had anyway. a, a he had an awkward uh, striking style yeah. too. It yeah. was really hard to get in. Yeah. We t- we talked about that, and we've talked about that. Uh, me and Eric talked about it. Me and Eric and Bo talked about it. Same exact thing that you echoed. Each one of us brought some different variable to the table, and we acknowledged it. More important than we brought it, we acknowledged that I wasn't the guy to teach wrestling. I wasn't the guy to teach you know kick, head kicks. Who was the? As soon as Lennox showed up day one. He was a wrestling coach. Like yeah, I, was, I was like, look, how can I be so delusional as to go, you need to listen to what I say when you're obviously a better wrestler than me. I think we accepted each other's weaknesses and we realized that we were going to get strong based on, you know, how we kind of complimented each Absolutely. other. Absolutely, yep. And, and so we were a good team. Do you feel like because we were a basement team, uh, that might have played into it? Do you think that if you trained at like some world-class 100%. facility, it would have been a, a better mentality 100%. Never would have came back. If that would have happened to me at some big place with... 20 dudes chomping at the bit to beat me up just because I was some new guy. I mean, I wasn't a very confident person then, and I accredit me being confident and me growing as a person to two people, well, three people, obviously my parents as one, but you know, your parents can only help you so much. It's like, you have to get out. Of course they're gonna support you, right? I mean, they're always gonna be behind you. Part of it's the journey of your own. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. my teacher, I had a teacher in high school, but like you, man, and I've said it, and I've, I've tried to tell you that as much as I can, I cannot thank you enough for what you've done for me, you know, help literally helped me grow into a man. Yeah, but you know what? Uh, I think you're still selling yourself short. This is why. You decided to fight. I wasn't fight. I wasn't competing. I had no interest in competing. What I wanted to do was become better and know that I could handle my shit. I loved martial arts and I love mixed martial arts because I've been I've watched this whole Bruce Lee thing unfold, his theory, his his concept. I'd watched it unfold in the UFC and I wanted to know more about it, but I never entertained the idea of, of fighting. It never crossed my mind. You wanted to do it right away. And you didn't ask, right? You didn't say, hey, Keone, you've got more experience. You just went, I'm going to go fight Ronnie Britt and I'm going to make my debut tonight. No, that's you were, not how it went. You were on the way with Bo and Stephen Pullen. It, it was, I, that I was. But the, the story was, I knew Gamst, who was, Nick Gamst was the promoter of the show. Okay, uh, I we had talked that name in a while. Wow. We had talked on MMA Underground. He was a pretty nice guy. He talked about local fights. I went to fights and watch and talk. And he said, you know, I had a fighter pull out. I can offer you, which for me back then was, he's like, I can offer you 300 bucks, 350 bucks. And I was like, what? You know, I'm in college. I'm like, that's a month of rent for me. Oh. He's like, I'll offer you that. I'm like, yeah, like, who is this guy? He's like, ah, he's only fought a couple times. He's like, you should be fine. I'm like, all right, screw it. I'm doing it. So yeah, we go down. I remember calling you. And when people ask me, what's the fight that you've learned the most from and that you respect the most? By far this fight. Yeah. Didn't turn out for me, but yeah, go down there. I remember I got to see the headline of that show was near and Derek Noble, dog breath Derek Noble, <laughs> and Josh Near, who at the time wasn't, I mean, he was a local, a local sensation, but I mean, now Near, I think he has his own gym, dude's 
Oh yeah, complete Nier, badass. Yeah, Nier is legit. Nier fought in the UFC a bunch of times, and he had some of the best MMA early MMA fights of all time with like Spencer Fisher. Yeah, yeah. He is anybody in MMA, the real legit guys in MMA, like the Diaz brothers. They know what's up. They know Nier's tough gangster. Yeah. he's a oh, real. He was legit sure. tough dude. Yeah, just absolutely. a legit hardcore tough dude. And oh, Jeremy Stevens fought that night. Yeah, Jeremy Low Heathens was on that card. Uh, Some tough people come now. out of Iowa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of tough dudes. Pulver was there in, I think, Nears Corner. But yeah, wrapped my hands, got ready for that fight. And as we're getting ready, they're like, oh, so you're fighting Ronnie Britt, huh? I'm like, yeah. Like, oh, man, good luck. That's going to be a really tough fight, man. I'm like, why? He's only fought like once or twice. No, man. He's like, he's a legend down here. He's fought like 13 times. I'm like, oh, oh great. <laughs> so then I get my stomach's going. I'm like, I might poop my pants during this fight. My, I was super nervous <laughs> then. But I'm like, you know what? I'm a, I'm a tough dude. I've been training for like what six, seven months. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? I'm I'm pretty tough. I've been I've been training. I know what's up. And the fight didn't go that way. We stood. We traded a couple times. I remember I kind of nicked him with something, and then he gave me a one of those poking his head out, talking yeah. to me. But that's when some of the pride rules were still in, so you could knee on the ground. Yeah. So he had me north south. It was kneeing me in the face. Broke my nose. That's why to this day my nose is still completely busted broke my nose i was choking on blood he ends up getting me like kind of a side schoolyard choke and i tapped out and that that has been the fight i've learned the most from because from that point forward i'm like i have a ton to learn and i'm not tough at all it's humbling and people have to have that experience yeah when people ask what's your what's the best fight that you've learned from by far that one. It's the one you get your ass kicked yeah, in. Yeah, get my, get my butt completely handed to me. Yeah, absolutely. What was, if you have a worst memory, what's your worst memory of, of MMA? What's the uh, what's the high and what's the low? If, if we're talking about like duality here, the yin and the yang, what's the best thing that you got out of MMA and what's the worst memory that you have of M MMA? If oh, any. Well, if, the positive, the positive is, I mean, it's a bajillion fold. I know the worst right off bat was my last fight. I vowed to never go out that way, but... Uh, it was my only fight here in Cedar Rapids. Mm -hmm. Only fight my parents, only fight my family have been to, all the oh, local yeah. people have been to. That. And I was, I, had, I lost my very first fight and then I went on to win six in a row. Mm -hmm. I was fighting for a local promotion here. And I remember, you know, Brester's like, we, we're going to get some good people like, you can keep going up. And I was thinking, man, like, could I legit, could I make something out of this? You know? Sure. Mm -hmm. I, was pr I was feeling pretty confident, like, you know, this could go somewhere. And I fought Luke Johnson, super nice dude. Oh, and Ronnie Britt. I don't know if he'll ever see this, but super nice dude, bought me a beer afterwards, and we oh, continued yeah. to be friends afterwards, which is something that people not in MMA would ever understand. Right. I've talked you, to Ronnie since then. Yeah. I, yeah he's he, still around. He punched each other. He, he broke my nose, choked me out, and afterward we had a beer and talked, and he shared, you know. Experience. Yeah. yeah. Perspective. Um, but yeah, Luke Johnson, he ended up, I don't remember, it was, I think, first round. But I was just, I remember mentally, I was at the lowest I'd ever been. I was so beaten inside already, mentally, I had no point. No, no. Why, why do you think you were beaten inside for that fight specifically? Uh, I was just nervous. I was nervous for family there. I was nerv nervous with what was riding on it. I Too was much nervous. pressure, right? Yeah, I didn't yeah. think that after people started hyping me up, like, I'm not, like, I'm not that great. I'm, I'm not going to live up to that. I can't, I can't do this. I'm not, look, there's no way I'm going to beat this guy. Mm -hmm. And he ended up flash knocking me and then TKO, and that was it. And I remember after that fight, I cried and I was just like, because I'd put so much into it. Like, people don't understand how much, you know. They don't. It was to the point I was eating broccoli to make weight. <laughs> and I was just like, I would get at the at the end of night, you know, you had you told me what to portion, what I could eat. Mm -hmm. I remember getting done eating my broccoli. I'm like, oh, if I could just have like one more, one more thing of broccoli, you know, just being so hungry. 
after that just feeling like so defeated when you put everything in it's not like it's not like basketball where you have a bad night you know you sit on the bench your team can you know help throw in it's you yeah it's you in front of everyone it's a complete different feeling than losing a basketball game or you know the probably the closest thing would be wrestling it's just you and another guy out there you yeah know? in and front of everybody that's hard it, yeah that's it, it real is. hard for people to chew let alone just get out there what's what's the percentage of people that have fought in the world population you know half a percent of people you know actually Maybe. step in a cage yeah well and there's so many people that have fought right there's so many people that got in like street fights or they got in schoolyard fights that's what it that's one thing but to get in a cage there's something psychological oh, about yeah. getting locked in a cage oh, in front yeah. of people you know people that you want to to help and this is one thing i talked to eric about this is why i feel like hybrid factions always my team when we won we won together and we celebrated and we were happy, we were euphoric. But 100%. when we lost, we all lost. When somebody would lose a fight, it didn't matter if all of us won, I would lose with that person. I would feel like I let that person down a little bit or that, you know, whatever pain they suffered, I, f I felt a little bit of that too. Yeah. The, the mind is such a powerful thing, but you're absolutely right. We talked about this a lot back in the day too. If only people once in their life had to prepare for a fight and fight, or at very minimum cut weight, they would probably be very different people. They'd probably have a lot more humility because they'd know how much sacrifice it takes. And to put in what, eight weeks? Eight to nine weeks of suffering, if we're yeah. being honest, and getting beat on and, and uh, punches and bruises and black eyes and cut lips, and then to lose. It's, yeah. That's why the sport is so extreme, because there's so much on the line, you know, and it is just you and in that cage, but it's not. It's the back, it's the pressure of everybody that you're trying to to make proud and to do proud. And I've, I've always felt like I've been a pretty good sense of energy. When I walked into your house that day of that fight, I felt something was off. I was like, man, I can tell Debo's super nervous. Oh, I was a wreck. Mentally, it, I was a wreck. Yeah. I had no business being in the ring that it, day. It, it sucks, but what a, what a learning experience that is as well, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, wait, what did and that I... that wasn't the bad part. Getting to, losing the fight wasn't the bad part. It was the, the regret of it because it seemed like after that it was just all kind of downhill. But it was also a blessing because coaching to me, 10 times more oh, yeah, what dude. I got enjoyment out of. Like you would always say, it was harder inside to corner someone and see them lose, like when it was just us, than it ever was to go in and, and lose. Like when I, I lost that first fight to Brit, I mean, it was tough, but it was like, I lost a fight, whatever. Like when, you, when you're training with one of your good buddies and you see them get beat, you know, somebody on your team, yeah, it's like, you just want to ball. It's yeah. like, they put so much in, you don't want to see, like, we were family. I mean, we were yeah. a legit family. And that, I, that's why I can identify when I hear, you know, veterans talk about the brotherhood of the military. I get it. You're in combat, blood, sweat, and tears with these people. Oh, yeah, I couldn't imagine. When, when you lose them or when you see them lose, it hurts. It, it should hurt. And that's really, that's true teamwork. And that's why those guys were so tight. That's why we're making this video, because I want people to know, like, there were five guys in the basement, give or take a couple here and there, but five core guys that took literally nothing and turned it into what now is serving as an inspiration or a place for kids that have no idea. They don't have any idea. We, we got Lennox is out on the wrestling mat working with his son on our, our mats and working alongside all of these other really good wrestlers that have no idea that this guy was part of the five that started this whole thing. All of the little tiny variables that go into what we did and now what it is and, and the effect that it's having in people's lives, it's just, it blows my mind. And so when people tell me things like, oh, I, I could never, I don't wanna hear that. You can do whatever you want, right? You can, you can 
if you put hard work into it, you can go from an untrained kind of cowardly little kid like I was and like you were when you were a kid, and you can become a professional athlete, a professional yeah. fighter. You can train yourself. Think about it. If somebody told you, hey, I'm going to go play flag football for like 10 years and then join the NFL, you'd laugh at them. It doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about? Like, you're not going to go through college or anything? Anything can be done. And the want and priority are the two biggest things that I learned yeah. from, from MMA, like in regards to that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. If you want it and it's a priority, it'll happen. Yeah. Now, can you be a world champion? Maybe, maybe not. But so many people sell themselves short on stuff, just, I mean, anything. That's yeah. one of the things I've learned from, from that. One of the positive things is people love to sell themselves short. Yeah. Well, there's a psychological uh, reason behind that, the negativity bias, this psychological construct in our head that says, uh, play it safe. Don't take too many risks. 100%. You could never do that. 100%. It's what it's kept safer the... to say I can't than right. try it and fail. It, it's the, it's the self-defense mechanism that kept the caveman in his cave at night because he knew that predators came out at night and the fear of what might happen kept him inside. Now, 364 days of the year, nothing's going to happen at all. There's not going to be a cougar or a bear in sight. But one of those days, there will be. And maybe it eats him, maybe it doesn't. But if, if he has that fear innate in his head, he never, take, he never takes that chance. He survives. So we have this survival mechanism that railroads the shit out of us now by stepping on our opportunities, kind of. Um, MMA, or the high-level competition that we did, I feel like, taught us what we were capable of. Taught us that maybe we weren't going to be like high-level professional fighters forever, but we could really do whatever the hell we wanted if we set our mind to it. I still, yeah, we still talk about that. Greg, <clears throat> Greg, another one of the the old OG guys. Greg I still, Johnson. Yeah, I work with Greg. Yep. Um, and we lift. Yep. And one thing that we talk about is like we see this stuff at work, and you'll hear people complaining about trivial things, and I, I do it too. Everybody's guilty yeah, of we it. Do it. Yeah. But I try to every day talk about things I'm thankful for, and think about the times where we'd go through hard drive practices with Dave where he'd want to I'd want to hear your bones clanking yeah. clank them bones and we'd Dan. go for help him out <laughs> and we'd go for two three hours and it's like we used to be able to do that when you go through one of those there's not much that you can't do yeah when we were training at Valhalla I was getting ready to fight Brandon Adamson Eric and somebody else had planned for a week, my hell week, and my final practice. And it was just ridiculous. Is it, you're, you're not going to win. Right out of the gate, you're set to fail, right? And after you fail on the weights, you're going to have fresh guys come in and beat on you. It's a total battle of will. So what I said to myself was I went, poker face. You'll be suffering so bad in about 15 to 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. Don't show any emotion. Be a machine. If you're going to get your ass kicked, be, get your ass kicked, but show no emotion whatsoever. Not a, not a blank. So I get through the whole thing, and I get my poker face in there. I, I shove everything down, um, and I get my ass kicked. So I go, and I sit on those little raggedy seats that they had out by the entrance of Valhalla underneath the, the hatchet, and I'm sitting there, and I'm kind of alone by myself with my thoughts, and I'm exhausted, and Tish walks in. She knew that I was going to be doing some shit, and she goes, what'd they have you do? And so I started recounting it and retelling it to Tish. Well, first I had to do Fight Gone Bad, where I had to do this and this and this. And I started crying. I, I broke down in tears. All this emotion from all of this suffering came pouring out of me. And I'm like, I, I need a minute to just sit here in my thoughts. I was broken to the core. And when you get there and you've done it purposely and you've put yourself in that place, A, it makes you a very, very formidable athlete 
a very formidable fighter, but B, it makes you the most humble person because you remember. You remember what being nothing feels like. And I think getting to that point gives you a, a perspective of empathy that most people can never understand because they've never had to do it. And, and if they did, they'd never willingly cast themselves into the fire and, and tested themselves in that way. Mm -hmm. So just getting through something like that, just getting through constant weight cuts, just reinforces to you the, the capability of your own mind. But it is a bitch, too. It took a lot of oh, toll on your body. Uh, just like I know it took a lot of toll on my yeah. body. And a big part of my retirement was uh, the fear, honest, the, honestly, the fear of CTE. Because the only thing that I'm really more interested in than being in shape and being a great martial artist is having my cognitive ability. Yeah. And we took some shots. Yeah, it was, it was the same for me. Not, I, I never worried about that as much until it came out later and we heard you know, fighters and stuff talking about it. But for me, it was my neck. I remember I, you know, I'd always struggled with neck stuff for yep. the, the longest time my second daughter was born and I was still trying to train when I could fit it in. I mean, it was hard with work and, you know, having two young ones, but I remember I finally went because it was like a week and a half, two weeks where my arm was on fire, burning every day. It was like nerve, couldn't right? Sleep. Yeah, nerve couldn't situation. sleep, couldn't do anything. And I finally went and she's like, the doctor came in and she, you know, was kind of a bad look. I'm like, like, is everything okay? She's like, well, you've got seven to eight discs that are pretty damaged she's like a couple of them are really bad she's like have you been in a uh, like a pretty stiff car accident like pretty bad and i, I laughed because i thought she was joking i was like <laughs> i was like no really how is it she's like no this isn't a joke i'm like oh and yeah i had like seven seven discs that were completely bad two of them were completely gone she's like i don't know how you're not in like extreme pain right now i'm like yeah i've been having you know, arm stuff and she's like well your body's already started healing itself she's like two of your vertebrae have, have actually started growing Fuse. together a few and she's like that's what we would do for you know an elderly person we, was, we would put plates and pins in and fuse those together which is now why i don't have very good range of motion but yeah like once once you start getting older and that stuff starts happening that's when i was like man i she's like okay listen like we can go in and do surgery but where it's at is very risky like we're gonna have to yeah. go in to your spine around your spinal column there's a chance that something you know could get hit you could be paralyzed and i was just like man that sounds like i don't think i'm gonna be training anymore and it was tough i remember i regretted that every day for a long time i still do what, what what do you mean you regretted it like how can you regret it if you feel so comfortable in the, and it was the right decision because of your health right well yeah maybe do you miss it is yeah maybe regretting it isn't and since then like <laughs> i went on like the complete opposite like i hated it after that like, I haven't watched a UFC fight, and I went out with Greg for a UFC fight, and that's probably the first one I'd watched in... Years. Five years? Yeah. Six years? I just, like, I just hated MMA after that. I don't I don't know why, but it was just this weird hate of... Negative association. <laughs> yeah, not and not even with my body. Like, I wasn't mad at it for my body, because, like, I could never think, like, you and the team and MMA for what it's done for me. Like, who knows where I'd be now. Mm -hmm. I may be dead in a street oh, race. I'd be in a bad place. Burning sure. on the side of the road, you know? <laughs> Yeah. <clears throat> um... But for whatever reason, just this weird, weird hate for it. And then mm -hmm. I just like, I didn't want to watch. I didn't want to almost, I think more of it was, I didn't feel like I was worthy. Like people be like, come over and watch fights. Come, you know, come do this. And it's like, I can't even train now. I'm a poser. Oh, um, and that, that's, that was the biggest thing for me is like, I didn't even want to watch it. Cause it's like, I can't do that anymore. Like I'm nothing. I you get know? that. And a lot of, a lot of people <laughs> that train have done that. We had a, a kid, unfortunately he took his own life. He is a really uh, beloved member of the team. But he left the gym for a while, and I hadn't seen him for a couple months. I reached out to him, didn't hear anything from him. I ran into him in, at the gym at Top Shape, and uh, I was in the sauna, and he walked by, and I'm like, Seth, 
what are you doing, man? Where have you been? Like, you're too, you're too good to not be in the gym. And he's like, oh, well, like, I didn't come for a while because of, you know, work. And then I, I thought everybody was going to be mad at me. And I'm like, no, Seth, we want you in the gym. And we want you, you, you know, you, you're contributing here. We want you to be a part of this thing. Right. We're not going to be mad at you. If you have life going on, you have life going on. But I, I get it. I think there is like, there's kind of this attitude sometimes with people in martial arts that if they can't practice it, they're not worthy to be a fan of it. But when you think about who is a fan of it, <laughs> they never practice yeah, at all. They're, they're usually just <clears throat> tipping back 12 ounces, you know? Yeah. You were very, very, you were very, very good uh, at martial arts, and I was, I was kind of sad to see you go. But I also knew that with a family, you have to prioritize. You have to have quality of life, and quality of life and, and physical health is pretty important, really. I would rather retire early and be walking up the side of a mountain when I'm 80 than rolling around or worse. Because my theory is, once you stop moving, once your body doesn't allow you to move. That's pretty much it. Yeah. It's game over. That's the that's what I've gotten watching like my grandfather and other people that have gotten up to that age and been forced to stop and then their body just kind of naturally goes at its time. Yeah, you know? there's a, a gentleman that runs uh, that I work with and he's like 60 and still runs like marathons, like Ironmans. And I'm like, how do you do it? Like, cause you see him, cause he kind of limps and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's like, well, and I remember who told him it, it was probably some, you know, famous quote. Now you might even know it, but it's uh, I didn't I didn't stop running because I got old. I got old because I stopped running. Mm. So like yeah. some famous runner probably said it or whatever. But he's like that stuck with me forever. And he's like I know because like I start to take time off and I get sore. He's like even though when I run all the time, he's like I feel you know I'm sore and I feel it. But if I didn't do anything all the time, he's like I probably wouldn't be walking. I probably wouldn't yeah. you know all the other things that happen with that. He's like I want to stay active. Dang. Get busy moving or get busy dying. Yeah. And uh, you remember Paul from McLeod, USA. I don't know if you remember Paul or not, because he got fired for pinching one of the manager's booties. <laughs> he was an old dude, but he used to work at MCI. No. And uh, he got fired, and uh, like three, four months later on Christmas Day, he passed away. And he was working there because he wanted to keep moving. He knew. And he had, friend, he had all of his friends pass away. They had retired. They would stopped moving. They would stopped having fulfillment. And they just croak. And I think there's something deep inside the human being or the human brain that says, hey, if you're not moving anymore, you're not yeah. useful anymore, yeah. it's time to go. Um, so what was the... Uh, you say you have kind of a negative association about MMA now. What's the not, not anymore? What's the best? Okay, what's the best thing you take from your time in MMA? What was the What's the happiest uh, memories that you have about it? All of it. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I, I can't thank you enough for for leading me and always be there. I mean, the team. Like I said, we were family. I mean, yeah. I would not give up any of that. The men, the mentality. I remember. I remember at, at the time, Fight Club was big when we first started training the movie yeah yeah and i remember a couple times we we're like you know is that like is that really real like is that real and i remember there was a few times where you and i you know we, we thought we were we were kind of hot we'd go up to, to random people that would kind of you know snicker at us or you know whatever and try to start something be like you know what do you have a problem 99.9 .9 times out of anything people don't want that no you know and i remember i don't want that smoke yeah after we kind of learned that and you, you know, you get more, you get that ego check and you get more in tune with yourself. Mm -hmm. Like that kind of stuff. I mean, as far as one, one moment coaching, I mean, being able to coach brought me far more joy than ever being able to fight. You know, I think I agree. a lot of that for you, you know, when you 
corner someone or you hear someone on the mat like, I tapped that guy because of what you taught me or I yeah. won that fight because of you. It's like, that's better than winning any fight for me. It's it like, really is. Do you ever think that you'd want to coach again? Um, there's a guy, and the reason I asked that, there's a guy, John Donaher, right? Uh, he's the hot shit right now in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I've seen some of his instructionals and they're incredible. This guy uh, was brought up in the Henzo Gracie school in the 90s and has since had a complete hip replacement. I think two, maybe one or two hip replacements. Um, can no longer competitively grapple and hasn't grappled for like years. But he's been in the gym and he's worked on probably the most heavily systemized grappling system I've ever seen in my entire life. Have you ever heard about how it takes 10,000 hours to achieve mastery? Um, this is a number that's been thrown around in a bunch of books, but basically 10,000 hours is the apprenticeship period. Seven years, like eight hours a day or something like that. I, John spent that amount of time when he could competitive grappling in, in Henslow's school, but after he got hurt and these injuries railroaded his ability to roll, he dove into actually studying the mechanics of jiu-jitsu, like the fundamental basics of jiu-jitsu. And he systemized it in a way, from the material that I've seen, that makes him capable of executing all of these moves in demonstration, even though he would never really competitively roll. Uh -huh. Do you think that you could ever find a passion for martial arts again where you just coached without being a competitive roller? Because I feel like there's two types of people. But the overwhelming majority, if they had rolling taken away from them or sparring taken away from them, would just stop uh, training or studying the martial art. What do you feel, where do you feel like you end on that thing? And do you think you'll ever jump on the mat just to coach or drill? Or do you think that you're, you're settled and you're kind of on a new path? Probably not, yeah, I don't. Just because it's changed so much since I trained and fought and coached, that I think there's people that now would have far more than anything I could share. I mean, I could share personal stuff, but I mean, as far as stuff on the mat, like, I think you need somebody that's there consistently that's going to, you know, be able to, because, you know, a big part of us was being able to see where are they at, where are they progressing, mm -hmm. knowing the people. And I, I don't think, with as much as it's changed, I don't think I would have much value at You know what's interesting, though? What I've, what I've noticed about that, and that would be the assumption, um, it's, it's gotten watered down. Really? Yeah. Way back in the day when I first saw the UFC and I saw jiu-jitsu and I saw Hoist punching people and submitting them, I went, holy shit, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is awesome and it's going to get popular. And when it gets popular, it's going to turn into Taekwondo and it's going to get watered down and people are going to start putting in techniques that work in the gi and they work in sport competition but they'd never work if you elbow somebody in the face or punch them in the face and bro that's what it is now. i never would have even ever thought of that you brought that up it's getting watered down now <laughs> there's people in the gi doing these crazy like worm guards and stuff and it's really interesting because the way they can use the gi as a tool to manipulate the sure. human body is really cool but that style of gi would get you brained in mma like, it is now becoming so specialized that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu doesn't even resemble what it did back in the day. Really? And yes. And so this is what I was going to tell you. This is what I, I never would have thought of that until you started talking about it. I told Eric this the other, the, the other night. I said, a lot of people, I feel like, in our circle wondered, how good are we? 
how we don't have any formal instruction there's no black belt around here yada 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 how uh -huh. good are we actually i put forth the claim that at the time our mixed martial arts skill was on par with any team on the planet and specifically our grappling knowledge and our style of grappling, our ability to punch and strike and move into better positions and hold triangles and punch and do the all the shit. The whole kick. Always be striking, right? I don't think there were many people on the planet that were better than us. And maybe that's a bold statement, but what I've seen now is um, this kind of di divergence from jiu-jitsu from a sport combat based system to a purely sport system and I'm starting to see the holes in it already I'm starting to see uh, jiu-jitsu sport practitioners at a high level doing these really cool fancy roll-throughs and barambolas it would never work in most combat situations where you just punch a dude in the mouth and drop his belt level one or two places but how much of that is Gi versus non-gi because that you know that was something we always talked about you know I never really had the privilege of, of getting into the gi like you guys did I, I you know a handful of times but mm -hmm. that was always something that we talked about and uh, at the time when I was training hard I was training two a days sometimes up at Waterloo with Greg Alzer and those guys yep. awesome awesome group of guys but you know they would show stuff in the gi and I would always kind of be like well like I don't really need to do this it wouldn't work for MMA you know so we always had that mindset of mm -hmm. we should really train gi but it's like a lot of that stuff's not going to translate over and we didn't you know and i think it almost seems like that's its own sport like a lot of those things that would work in in gi jiu-jitsu work because you have the gi right you know you almost have to chop it in half and say you know this will work here because it's almost a completely different sport I, and i do when i coach now i'm like hey guys this will work with the gi but it won't work without the gi but what i'm what i'm finding with the gi and training in the gi now for six years or seven years is all of the handles are the same the only difference is I can actually grab the gi, mm -hmm. but where my arms are going to get an underhook, it's all the same. I'm trying to get a deep wrap and get that grip, but if I didn't have that grip, I'd be trying to get that deep wrap around the armpit or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, so it's a tool that kind of reinforces the way my body is supposed to move. But it also slows things way, way, way down. And it, there's also a lot of things that it does to slow things down that would not work if you could hit somebody. Sure. Yeah. So our our style of jujitsu, as rudimentary as it was, and as non-founded in the classical system, I think it was one of the highest performing. You look at somebody like your guard or Eric's guard, and I think that's evidence of that. I think we had, we beat guys we weren't supposed to beat. We shredded people like Joe Pearson. Remember when everybody's like, oh, Joe Pearson's gonna try Eric and I'm like no he's not Eric is gonna triangle him we knew that we were, we were kind of on another level than a lot of people so um, it's, it's interesting though because you would be shocked at how pure your skill is because of the way that we trained there are a lot of jujitsu guys that are phenomenal at what they do but they're starting now to lean more towards this uh, um, reliance upon the gi and the best the best grappler on the planet right now his name's gordon ryan he won abu dhabi twice he hates the gi hates it <laughs> he's trained in it he's competing in it he's pound for pound the best grappler on the planet um and he's one of donaher's guys he's <laughs> he's that guy donaher i told you about which you've never heard of him right no i don't, I don't follow he's, him he, so he's the hottest shit in jiu-jitsu right now he hasn't trained or rolled in like years and years and years and years in he's his coach and yeah, his, he wow. coaches at Henzo's now. His squad is the most dangerous squad in all of grappling. And he doesn't, <laughs> even, he doesn't even fucking roll, bro. 
Isn't that nuts? It's all up here. He was so in love with jujitsu that he went, can't roll, doesn't matter. Now I'm gonna put it into the books. And he sat down for six years on. That's yeah. That, that's that. That's that want. Yeah. You have to have yeah, that yeah, want. Yeah. Yep. And you and you have to have that. Why is it slipping my mind now? The want and the. Perseverance. Uh, what's the word? Uh, I feel like an idiot. Jabberwocky. Jabberwocky. The want and the jabberwocky. The <laughs> of want, course, the jabberwocky. What is it when you give up stuff to take other things? Why can't the I sacrifice? Think? Sacrifice, yeah, yeah, the want and the sacrifice. Yeah. If you want it enough and you sacrifice enough, it'll come. Yeah. Uh, Debo, what are you up to now? Work, the fam, kind of the, Got the two girls. every day. Yep. Two girls. Uh, How long have you and Michelle been married now? I was in your wedding. I guess I got the pictures that you gave me. Yep, yep. I don't uh, know if I've unboxed them yet because I'm, I live like a hermit <laughs> and I come only to, to sleep and record podcasts. But how long have you guys been married now? Uh, let's see, 12-ish years, Damn. 13 years. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah, thanks, man. Right. So here's the deal. We've been talking about MMA and our experience in MMA. And I've been trying to build my follower base for a long time. And it pales in comparison to what you've done with the fish game. Tell me about fishing. Tell me about when you when your passion really became fishing, and when you dove into it—no pun intended—and uh, where you're at with it now, and what you hope to achieve with it in the future. Because um, you've got uh, quite a following of, of loyal fans. Yeah, yeah, it's it's ballooned into something that I never, ever, ever in a bajillion years would have imagined. Um, I mean, I've always had a huge passion for fishing ever since I was young. That was probably my favorite thing to do. Uh, with pops and then even up until I mean high school I've got a big scar on my finger there was one year I was gonna go fishing had all the stuff out I think I was like a freshman mm-hmm. um, I, don't, I, don't, you, I think you met Cassidy our old Brittany back at my parents house yeah. mm-hmm. um, she went up sniffed the lures got a trouble hook I was trying to get it out oh, it was stuck in my finger and her nose that. And her, uh, ah, that sucks. so I've got that so I've got the big big scar on my finger um, I mean but it was after fighting it you know that need to do something and I've always that's something I've taken from you as I was a very cerebral fighter and trainer and you know for I was trying to find it and bring it over and I was gonna let you have it but for the first three years of our training I don't even know if you knew about it I kept a diary every single day every night after training I had notes of every single night what we did what I wanted to work on because one of the other things two other things I guess that you always taught me was the plate if there's too much on your plate because I'm, I'm a person that easily gets stressed out and I always have to go back to you talking about the plate. Debo, you can only load your plate so full. If it's too full, you gotta scrape off some of the food, you gotta eat it, you gotta do something, get less on your plate, right? Because I, w- I would be like, <laughs> nights I would just be ready to explode inside. Yeah. And just such a mental head case. I'm the biggest like, hypocrite, bro. Yeah, I, got, like, just, I got way too take, much shit on my plate <laughs> all the time. I'm trying to tell you how to prioritize your life. But it worked. I mean, it worked. It's something that stuck with me. That's what I mean. Yeah. These things that you, you don't think about, and that you probably have no remembrance of even talking about. I remember the plate. Times. I remember the plate, yeah. But that, you know, dude, you got to take some You got to take some off your plate. I, don't, I have no idea where I was going with that. Fishing. Fishing, yep. Yeah, fishing. Uh, you um, kept a diary. You kept, oh, a diary. Yeah, I kept a diary. And by the way, if you get that, I need to check that I'll, out. I'll, yeah, I'll now, look. I have some old stuff too of the combinations that we used to put. To, like that's where I was going with it. Yeah, so yeah. I've always had this yearn to get better, mm-hmm. and I would I would keep track of what like what do we do tonight? What do we work on? Instead of trying to learn everything in one night, you were always a huge proponent of every single night you come in, pick one thing. It might not sound like much. A guard. You know how are you going to hold your arm? How are you going to place your feet? All night, think about how you're gonna place your feet in this one position that works, little stuff, and it's like, that ain't gonna get me better. Like, I wanna come in and learn a flying triangle tonight. (laughs) I wanna learn a rolling knee bar. Those are the things I wanna, like, it ain't gonna happen. Same things happen for fishing, for YouTube. I Like, I always want to 
get better and grow. And that's something, again, I, I credit to you, man, of being able to, to see that small picture, you know, just the small one little thing and where it can go. Mm. And that's kind of what fishing brought me is I've always loved fishing. I've always been decent at fishing. I've been lucky to have my old man teach me bajillions and bajillions of different things and but it's like I want to get better you know there's certain things that he never you know did like frog fishing is something I love to do he never did it's like I want to get good at that it looks fun that's my favorite thing to do because there's a there's a ton of different fishing right there's a ton of different variations of the type yep. fi fish you're going after the type of lures you can use yep. like I imagine and to be a pro, I imagine, you have a way deeper knowledge base than what most people think. Most people probably Absolutely. are like, oh, he's putting a worm on the hook and he's throwing it out there. And you're like, no, 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 no. I'm going after this. Yeah, it's the, it's the exact same thing. So time of year, what cycle the bass are in, what's the water clarity, what's the moon cycle. You know, all these different things, where are you going to fish? Are you going to fish wood? Are you going to fish rock? All these different things that play into it. And that's, that's what I love now is I'm by no means a pro, but it comes down again to those two things. The want and are you going to sacrifice enough for it you know those guys are on the road what people don't understand is professional fishermen are on the road six days a week you know they're, they're not home with their family they're, they're driving to the next thing they might come home for a couple weeks they're on the road for two weeks they got a pre-fish what, what so what's the like i've heard i've heard of kind of the process pre-fish and stuff like that what is uh if you're one of the top three fishermen in the world what are, what are you looking at in terms of a pay scale? What's a six-day-a-week schedule merit for a payout? Do you know? <laughs> well, that thing, yeah, it's it's so muddy now because, like, there used to be the big, like, the BASS, like, the Bassmaster Series was, like, yeah. one series. So kind of, like, Pride, UFC, WEC, they kind of had their own thing. So there's like, FLW was a different tour, Bass, MLF is the big thing now, and they were all kind of slightly different rules. But I don't remember what the last Bassmaster was of the year, but... Off the top of my head, I think like 250,000 if you win one. Oh, damn. To 500, I think the classic is 500,000 or a million when you win it. But people don't understand that in the Bass series, which is what kind of spawned the whole MLF thing, you've got entry fees, you've got gas, mm -hmm. you've got lodging. So you're looking at just to enter five, 10, 15,000, you know, at these different things just to enter. Right. And then if you don't top, you know, place, there might be 50 to 100 anglers on that lake fishing that tournament. If you don't place in the top 10, you don't make any money. Or you lose. Yeah. Yeah. So you're there spending $10,000 just to get there and fish. You don't get a paycheck for each one of these if you can't get top 10, you know? Right. So that was a big thing with like MLF opened up and they don't have the entry fees. And it's like it got a different pay scale. So, and there's the whole, you know, politics behind that now and, and that whole Always thing. Always politics, but, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, you know, people here pro and they think it's just this big, lucrative, easy thing. Oh, I could go out on a boat and catch fish. But it's like, I consider myself a good novice like mm -hmm. at fishing um, but those guys are on a whole different level you know they can go to any body of water and say okay this is the time of year this is the water temperature this is the clarity here's my game plan to fish it and that's when they go into pre-fish to see okay is is what i'm doing working and there's different type of bass so you can only catch like the three actual type of bass spots large and smallmouth. i think they're all the qualifying all those I mean, each one's a little bit different so you might have guys like me that i'm predominantly a largemouth fisherman, completely different than smallmouth. So you might go to a lake where you're fishing only smallmouth, a guy like me is at a disadvantage, mm -hmm. you know, things sure. like that that people don't think about. So there, it's a lot more mental fishing. And that's another thing I learned from MMA, how mental. And so, everything you know, is mental. Yeah. yeah, sure. It's like you might, you might be able to fish, you know, at your home lake, but can you go to some lake you don't know, pick it apart and enough, you know, know enough up here and be confident in it? Because one thing that'll eat people up fishing is you might spend two hours in a spot and then you just you're spinning wheels and then you just lost it like you just flipped you're like i don't i don't know what the hell i'm doing i, I want to give up you know 
and you see that all the time in like the Bassmaster stuff, which is what brings me back to fishing is mental. It's a complete mental game because you'll see those guys that go, yeah, I haven't had a bite in two hours, but I know this is what I need to do today. They might not be biting now, but you know, as soon as that wind changes, yeah. they could turn the bite, and then you'll see them catch like 20 fish. That's crazy too, right? <laughs> so like they have a level of mastery that they can just show up to a body of water and strum their fingers through it and look at it. Yep. And they've got they've already got it built in because they they're yep. a master of the water. They're a master of, of those conditions and that. that that's fascinating to me. The idea of mastery of any kind of uh, subject or skill or art form is super, super interesting to me because it's so detail-oriented. And this is what I'm learning about jiu-jitsu now is, man, I thought jiu-jitsu was this very, very complex uh, puzzle of moves. And and to a degree it is, to some degree. But the more I learn now, the more time I spend, it's so simple. It's all just like balance and alignment Mm -hmm. and leverage and and, rotation, super simple basic ideas. And I think the same thing probably happens in fishing or any any other kind of like uh, activity. You you attain a level of mastery where you almost have an intuition about it that people can't even understand. And that's awesome. That's like a true specialist. Fishermen call it just fishing. Just fishing. Yeah, you'll you'll, you'll just put fishing. this you'll you'll put this whole game plan together, and you get to this place, and you're like, I know it's this time of year. You do that, you don't get bit. What happened? You yeah. know, people are so thrown off. They're like, I just have to go back to fishing. They're just going off that instinct, their gut. What are they going to do? Do you think part of the joy of fishing is not catching anything? Oh, absolutely. Just yeah. relaxing and chilling and yep. being in a zen state. Um, and like we don't have it like the guys in Florida, you know, Texas have where they have, you know, legit yeah. big fish. Yeah. You know, up here it's not, our state record is 10 point, I want to say 1, 2, 10 pound, 12 ounce, I think is state record. For um, what? For bass? For largemouth bass. Yeah. yeah. Caught out of a private farm pond, I believe. Still a big ass fish. Oh, a huge fish. That's yeah. I mean, that's a trophy fish. That's once in a lifetime. But yeah. the probability of catching one of those here is right. so small. Whereas you go to somewhere like Clear Lake, California, or Okaboji, and legit weekly, probably daily, I'd say people are catching ten pounders. Damn. Whereas here, you might not hear of somebody catching one. And if you do, it's oh, where'd you catch it? Private farm pond. You know. Yeah. Like public fishing around here just isn't isn't great. But oh, what I was going leading that into was that want or that need of always wanting, you know, that next cast can be it, that next cast can be the lottery for me, it could be the one. So those days where you don't catch are so humbling and keep you like, oh, I thought I knew what I was doing, but shoot, I didn't catch a single thing. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but I might go out next week and catch a 10 pounder, you never know. But it's like meditation too, right? I'm sure it's frustrating if you're competitive, if you're a competitive person, but um, the last time that I went fishing with Deer Pops, uh, I didn't catch really anything, and I didn't want to. I just wanted to like sit out there and hold this and have a couple bites and talk to my dad. And sure, if you pull in something awesome, it's way better, right? Sure. But there's something really peaceful and serene about just sitting on a lake and having a relationship with the feel, you know, the connection. Absolutely. So. Yeah, fishing something different for everyone. There's a lot of people that are like that. It's just a whole mental, I don't have work, I don't have all the crazy stuff. I'm just out enjoying nature. And the things you miss by not being out there, like. You yeah, would, you would never know of half the things in nature that are out there, you know, if you're not an outdoorsy person. Like a connectivity, like a, mi- a true mindfulness, right? Yeah. A presence in the moment. Yeah. That's awesome. And there's so little of that now. 
so many people are so tied up in just like stimuli, 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 stimuli. It's like, no, yeah. I mean, Elon Musk enough. talked about it. You've got everything at your fingertips. You don't need to do anything else. You know, people have talked so long about integrating with robots and being, oh, you know, I want to be a cyborg. You've got that. I mean, the only difference is it's not part of you and it's not instantaneous. Yeah. You know, I can find really anything I need to. It might take me. 10 minutes to an hour to find, you know, but you've got everything. Every, you got everything at your fingertips and they don't, like kids don't know this. My kids don't get it. They can be on Snapchat for three hours, but when they need to replace a panel in their door, Google doesn't exist anymore or something. They come to me, dad, how do you do this? And I'm like, I, wait a minute. I was told the internet was going to educate the masses and all it's done is, you know, allowed, made it easier to find porn and, and be vain. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's almost, it's, it's almost the two ends of the spectrum. People don't want to, and it's like, yeah, I don't know how to do it. Or now you, now you can learn more than anything. You know, if I wanted to learn something, I'd have to look in an encyclopedia, you know, back in the day. Yeah, you know, I'd have to read books. I'd have to. It took forever. Whereas now, I can type in, learn how to change a battery in my car. I've got ten videos. I've got you figured access. Out. Yeah, you can get. So it's easier than ever before. But well, this this podcast, all of the stuff that I have set up here, the cameras, the the software, the the hardware, the Zoom recorder, all this shit. I all got it all off YouTube. I watched videos on YouTube from podcasters and from people that do this, and they said this is the equipment. And then, like, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a consummate perfectionist, like my pops, and so I would decide I'm going to get the Zoom, and then I'm not going to get the Zoom. But the point is, I set this whole thing up on uh, YouTube. We set up hard drive or hybrid faction, what would later become hard drive, in a basement with $1,200 in mats and no wall pads. Uh, again leading you to the the assumption that whatever it is in life you now have the opportunity to go out there and get and it's not even as hard as when we were kids we might have to go to the library right and look this shit up right so why don't we merge it with technology then let's let's go off on a totally different branch mm, because down the wormhole, huh? what we have right you you said it we're already starting to merge we're with already it. there yeah, yeah as far as merging we're, we're there it's just not what about the anatomical what, what happens, when's the first chips going in, and uh, are you sold on that? Because Oh, it's going to happen, for I, sure. I think it's going to happen, for based sure. on what I've read from uh, Ray Kurzweil. He's convinced me that we're going to hit a point where we're going to merge, where people are going to start chipping themselves, and they're going to be ver they're gonna have VR. Uh, not even in phones, actually implanted into themselves. Is that, is, do you think that's a dangerous thing, or do you think that's just a part of natural evolution? I think it's like everything. I mean, if we have it, people might say that if you were to look back when we were kids and talk about everything you get from a phone, everything that's available, everything, people would be like, no, one, that's never going to happen, and they two, that's too it. dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think they've already done a bunch of stuff. I forget what the study was or whoever the, the guy was that was doing it, but yeah, he already had the chip thing. So when he'd come in into his house, the doors would automatically open for him because he was, you know, whatever the sensor was. Um, but you know, the TV would come on, the lights would come to a certain thing, heat would go to a certain, just by him walking in, not having to do anything. And I think that's probably the next step is because we're always looking for things that are easy, right? We always yeah. want stuff that's easy. We want Alexa or you know the Google things or whatever to talk to it. Mm -hmm. And I remember for the longest time we held out, we got one for a present, and now it's like, yeah, you know what, this is pretty nice. And I think there's gonna be a lot of, of push, you know, the, the resistance to that at first, and then once people start getting it in real small doses, yeah. now it's like, you know, I can tell the music to come on, I can set a timer, I can check the weather. It's, I've already got that all here, yeah. I've already got it all here, but now I just have to say it. Yeah. I, that one less step of having to type it in. So the real danger then, if there is a danger, comes when all of the sudden, none of the shit works. 
for whatever reason, if there's if there is some huge cataclysm where the whole electrical grid breaks down, and now all of a sudden, thirty years from now, people don't know how to open doors and shit, like you know, or yeah. or the doors that are made in thirty years don't open manually, like they only open with electronics. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, it never gets to that. I think that's one part of it. I think the second part that's scary to me is like if stuff breaks I think people get around it and there's probably gonna be people like now that don't want to do you know anything and it's, it's just such a big inconvenience all oh, life is horrible and I, this. I think people get around that pretty quick I think the real problem is when and it sounds far-fetched it's Terminator Skynet but Google itself YouTube all these social medias have algorithms built in that even the companies can't tell you how they work. They're their own living entity. You know, like on YouTube, when you put a video out there, how do you know when some videos do well? How do you know when some don't? People have tried to figure out the algorithm. Nobody knows for sure. But it's a living, breathing thing that now YouTube will automatically censor its own videos and say, is this appropriate or not? Based on its own algorithm, not people. It'll actually automatically take it and say, oh, this isn't appropriate. It's blocked or Weird. it's not monetized or... The scary thing is when that kind of stuff starts happening, if you do integrate physically, you know, a chip or something, and that thing is able to think on its own. You, when do you when do you have control or no longer Right, well, just control. like Tesla's cars. I mean, yeah. you look at the Tesla, you can sit in, and it's, you know, as long as it's programmed on one of those acceptable streets of places, you don't have to drive it. Which is fine with me, because when I was a kid and I was watching Back to the Future and saw the flying cars, I was like, okay, 2015 or whatever, 2020, we're gonna have flying cars. Yeah. This is gonna be great. No petroleum. Yep. <laughs> petroleum oil. still on oil, still burning oil. Um, all right, Debo, we'll, we'll wrap it up. I, want, I don't want it to keep you from the fam too long. Uh, how can people get a hold of you? How can people uh, check your fishing station out on social media? Um, check me out. I'm on YouTube. I am on Instagram, Debo's Fishing. Type it in, you'll find me somehow. Debo's Fishing. Debo's. Cool. Debo, thank you for coming in, brother. You know I love you. Um, I always get to uh, love getting to catch up. Uh, I'm hoping that we're going to plan the, the hybrid reunion soon. Sweet. Get me, you, Eric, uh, Jesse, and Bo together. You ever want to talk, you ever want to be on our podcast, man, anytime, I'd love to have you. And I'd I'm love open, to return man. the favor, even though I don't know shit about fishing. <laughs> I'll go out there. Hey, that would be great. I can, I can, I do a lot of beginner stuff. But I'm no pro, like I've said. I do a lot of stuff to help beginners just because there's not a lot of that out there. So I See, can... I know enough that I'll, I can show up and I can fish. <laughs> but my dad was, to me, my dad was so much better than me and he was helping me fish all the way till the very end. So um, we could do a comedy skit where I try to fish and you actually show me the right way to do it. No, it wouldn't even be comedy skit, man. Yeah, we could just it go might out. end up comedy. We could just go out and fish. <laughs> I bet it'd end up comedy. <laughs> It's all good. All right, brother. Well, I thank you very much, guys. Thanks for uh, tuning in with us. Eric was training hard. He's got a fight coming up in March. And uh, I've got a trip to Israel, which I'm going to tell you about a little bit after hours here. I got a, it's a wild story. And I'm going nice. to do, do some podcasts based on that. But, guys, thanks for checking out Mind Raid. We're on iTunes. We're on YouTube. We're on Facebook. We're on all that shit. Look us up. Check us out. We'll continue to get better as we go. And we're going to tell this whole MMA story that we've uh, put together throughout all these years. And once we get all of the stories from all of the people involved, uh, we're looking forward to talking about other things that kind of fascinate us. Anything from faith, religion, uh, culture, to science, space exploration, aliens. You know, I'm a huge fan of Aliens. I, I want to be on that episode. We, we've been talking about it the whole time. and huge fan The Alien episode is going to be a big one. Uh, and I'll, I'll invite you back if you want to hit that one Absolutely. up, too, because it'll be a good Absolutely. one. Absolutely. All right, cool. Thanks, Debo. Thanks, watchers. We'll Absolutely. see you guys soon. All right, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm honored to be on. This will be good. I Dude, i got to go pee so bad I thought I might pee my pants.
This podcast is made possible by Gail and Douglas Koch and the Family Hard Drive. Music courtesy of Mike Chino. 